Father, thank you so much for this new day, for the beautiful weather, and just for uh, the opportunity to celebrate you and celebrate what you've done in the life of Plum Creek Chapel and to open your word together and just see uh, how faithful you are. And so, Lord, as we begin our first hour now and begin uh, to look at more about your uh, soon coming and what it's going to be like when all things are made new, I pray that you would just fill us with hope and uh, encouragement and expectation. And Lord, help us to, uh, to just set aside whatever may be uh, causing us to be anxious or worried or distracted uh, and really focus on you the rest of this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, um, we are continuing our look at the end times, and this is our uh, 68th week in this. And I want to give you a heads up. As soon as we finish Revelation 22, which may or may not be today, uh, we're going to spend the next few weeks uh, in open Q&A just to kind of review and wrap up. And each week I'll have, I'll go back through our notes and our uh, presentations and find uh, things that we've talked about to stimulate some discussion. But I want you to be thinking about uh, some questions, uh, and it could, could be anything related to the end times. And if you're watching by live stream, I encourage you to uh, send those to us uh, by email or text, all of our, my contact invos uh, at the Not By Works website. Uh, and we will just kind of let that take us through the, the fall. Um, that will help me out as I think and pray about what, to, what series to do next at our 9 o'clock hour. And also as I'm finishing up the book, uh, that will give me some, some time. So, uh, but today we're going to continue our look at the eternal state. And so as we've been kind of, we, we get all of this information from Revelation 21 and 22, of course. And we went through 21, we're now partway through chapter 22 of Revelation. But just to keep it in perspective, I want to remind you that we're talking about the end of the age. Uh, we're talking about what is variously referred to in the Bible as the kingdom, but we, you see it referred to in literature as the messianic kingdom. Uh, the millennial phase of that kingdom, the first 1,000 years, will be on this present earth. Christ comes back at the Battle of Armageddon. He defeats the Antichrist and the false prophet. Uh, he uh, establishes or inaugurates the kingdom age with the with the banqueting supper and uh, that kind of that kickoff party, and then uh, uh, the temple is rebuilt, the glorious temple described by uh, the prophet Ezekiel, and I think we mentioned last week that the prophet Haggai um, refers to that temple and says it's going to be its glory will be greater than any temple up to that point. Of course, the millennial temple pales in comparison to the eternal temple, which is, as we've talked about, the triune God. There is no temple, brick and mortar, in the eternal state. And uh, so that's the millennial phase. At the end, and during that thousand-year time, Satan, of course, is, is put in prison uh, and uh, held largely in check. Uh, and the purpose of that millennial phase is to demonstrate that even under the most idyllic of conditions, when Satan is in check and... The King of Kings and Lord of Lords is ruling in perfect peace and righteousness and justice on the throne in a one-world system. Even then, uh, the heart of man is desperately wicked and people will reject the free gift of eternal life. They will reject the gospel. And so um, by the end of the thousand years, which a thousand years, if you think about it, it's a long time, you've got a, quite a contingent of unbelievers who have been born during the kingdom and chosen to reject Christ instead of believe in him. And uh, Satan will be let loose for one final battle, which won't be much of a battle at all, with a word Christ cast 
Satan and all of his demons into the everlasting lake of fire. Then the old earth and heaven, as we've been talking about, is uh, destroyed, utterly, completely destroyed because it's under the curse of sin. This isn't a renovation. It's not putting a Band-Aid on something, but it's recreated. And in such a way, the Bible comes full circle, as we've been talking about, back to the pre-fall Edenic state. And once again, uh, all God's people who have availed themselves of the redemptive work of Christ and the price that was paid on their behalf by Christ will spend eternity in glory with Christ. So the Bible really does tell a story. I was talking to someone right before we started about the connection between Genesis and Revelation. And uh, that's why in my book, uh, What Lies Ahead, which is a, a biblical overview of the end times, we start in Genesis. Because you can't understand the end until you understand the beginning. And it all hinges, of course, uh, on the, that great uh, covenant uh, promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. But, you know, a lot of people miss the fact that, for example, in Revelation 12:9, it makes a reference to Genesis 3, or really Genesis, yeah, Genesis 3, and that serpent of old, the devil, who tempted Eve in the garden. And so the Bible really does tell a story. It's a, a story, 6,000 years and counting, of God's uh, creation of man in his own image, the fall of man through his own free will when we chose to rebel against God, and God then setting in motion the plan to redeem mankind. We've talked about how the earliest reference to the gospel is Genesis 3.15, when God says that the uh, seed of the woman, ultimately referring to Christ, that's why if you have a good English translation, it's going to capitalize seed there in Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman, Christ, will ultimately crush the head of the serpent. And he received the mortal wound at Calvary 2,000 years ago, uh, but uh, he is still, for reasons known only to God, given some latitude now on earth. Uh, he's uh, writhing in anger and uh, and, and just uh, trying to take as many people down with him as he can. We've been talking a lot about the Luciferian conspiracy and how Satan has been conspiring, according to Psalm 2, David tells us, with the kings and earthly leaders to take over this world for 6,000 years, but in earnest in 2,000 years, for 2,000 years, because at Calvary he realized that his uh, time was short, that uh, you know he was on life support, so to speak. And, and so he's been desperately trying... Uh, throughout the church age, to overthrow God and destroy and kill, steal and destroy His people. Um, the Bible tells us in 1 John 5, the whole world is under the sway of the wicked one. He's the prince of the power of the air. He's the God of this age. And so, uh, but at, at the end of the millennium, we will see the final redemption of all creation, as Peter talks about and the book of Revelation talks about. And so what will that time be like? What will the eternal state be like as we uh, enjoy eternity with our Savior? Last week, we left off with talking about the facts about the new Jerusalem. Remember, the new Jerusalem is part and parcel to the new heavens and uh, new earth. It comes into being in the new heavens and the new earth. It's not around during the millennium, even though some scholars suggest it is. I disagree, and I gave you the reasons a few weeks ago why I think that is. Um, but uh, so we looked at the talked about the river of life, the tree of life, the throne, and all of that. But today I want to move into uh, uh, the facts about the citizens of the New Jerusalem. And the first one, right out of the bat, is we will see Jesus. Now, for church age believers, this will not be the first time that we've seen Jesus, will it? 
When, when do we first see Jesus face to face? At the rapture, that's right. So 1 Thess 4 says that uh, the Lord will come back. We'll be caught up together to meet Him. Jesus says in John 14 that where He is, we will be also. So He doesn't come all the way to the earth. He comes in the clouds for that great reunion in the sky. Uh, those loved ones of ours who know the Lord, who died before us, they will be with Him. And it will be a glorious time as we see Him face to face. And then, of course, the whole world will have seen Jesus for a thousand years as He's ruling and reigning from the throne in perfect righteousness. Remember, there'll be no injustice in the millennium. Uh, there'll be no uh, trials by jury uh, because uh, God is omniscient and Jesus is God. And when someone uh, commits a crime, we'll just ask Jesus, did he do it? He'll say yes, either thumbs up or thumbs down, you know. Um, I think I've told this story before, but every time I think about, you know, that mental picture of Jesus on the throne and one of the unbelievers that was born later in the millennium commits a crime and, 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 and we have to decide, is he guilty or is she guilty? And, and you look at Jesus and he gives it the thumbs up or the thumbs down. I think about my experience as a teenager. We went to a large uh, church in Houston. It's a church that I was uh, uh, surrendered to preach in and was licensed in as a young man. And, uh, but back, back in the day, of course, you had Sunday night services and it was a big Baptist church and we had youth choir, youth ensemble, what used to be called training union, which was like a Sunday night, Sunday school, and then the Sunday evening service. So my Sundays, I'd get home, have lunch, and I'd have to be back at 3.30 for youth ensemble, 4.30 for youth choir, 5.30 for training union, and 6.30 was the evening service. So what that meant, which was really quite a, a suffering in, in my younger days, was that if the Cowboys played the late game, I didn't get to watch it. And so my dad didn't have to show up to church, uh, my mom and dad, but my dad sang in the choir. We had a choir on Sunday evening services, adult choir. He didn't have to show up till a few minutes before the service, and they would meet in the choir room, and then they would come out right at 6.30. So here I am, and this was way before, you know, cell phones and anything. And, you know, occasionally I would try to sneak out to my car and turn on the radio and catch an update of the game. But most of the time I'm going from ensemble to youth choir to training in, and then I come in to sit in church. And we had this system going where I would look at my dad in the choir, and if he went like that, it means the Cowboys won. If he went like that, it meant the Cowboys lost. And so, uh, but anyway, that's what it'll be like in the millennium. And yes, the Cowboys will be in the millennium. Uh, but uh, anyway, uh, it, you know, it'll be perfect justice. And so we will see him. We'll see Jesus ruling and reigning. We'll be coming up with all the nations uh, to Jerusalem. We'll be... Uh, many believers from the church age will be ruling and reigning with him on thrones. Remember, Jesus told the uh, 12 disciples they would sit on 12 thrones with him. And then we're told in Luke 19 that if we're faithful while he's gone, when he comes back, he will put us in charge of various areas of responsibility. So he, the book of Hebrews uh, talks about reigning with Christ. Not every believer in the present age is going to have the privilege of reigning with Christ. Uh, some will be in the kingdom, and it'll be a positive, glorious experience for all, but the rewards that some get will be greater than other, others, and we get those at uh, the beam of judgment. Uh, but, uh, the, the, but everybody will, will know the Lord. Jeremiah the prophet talks about during this time how everyone on earth will know of him from the least to the greatest. So we will have seen Jesus, but nothing compares to what it will be like when we see him in the eternal state after the curse of sin is removed. Now, again, we receive our glorified bodies, we meaning the church, 
age believers at the rapture. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, this mortal will put on immortality, this uh, cor cor corruptible will put on incorruption, we must all be changed. So the dead in Christ at the rapture, meaning those believers who've already died, how many of you know a believer, a Christian who's died? All right, well, you, knew, you, you realize, I hope, that that person is in heaven in the presence of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 tells us to be absent from the uh, body is to be present with the Lord. Uh, Paul tells us uh, in, uh, I think it's in Philippians, um, don't quote me on that, but I think it's in Philippians 2 uh, that he desires, when he was in prison, he desired to depart and be with Christ, which was better by far, but it was more needful for him to stay here in the body. So at death, those loved ones that we have, that uh, believers, that is, uh, are in the presence of uh, the Lord. And at the rapture, those people are coming back with Christ, and their physical bodies, which were left behind at death, wherever that might be, whether it's in the grave, whether they were cremated, whether they were lost at sea, whatever it might be, the very physical atoms, the materialistic atoms of that person will be reconstituted into a glorious uh, a body. That's what Paul means when he says the dead in Christ will rise first. And so their bodies will be given a glorified state and reunited with their souls. The rest of us who are already, who are still alive on the earth and haven't died yet, we will be changed. It's what we call a translation. So you've got a resurrection and a translation. In our chart book, we've got charts that show you when that happens for each person from you know beginning of time through the end of the millennium and so uh, at that moment we we will all have our glorified bodies and so we will be you know untouched by sin uh, anybody that enters the millennium from the church age after the tribulation of course will be in their glorified body but there will be some believers who got saved during the tribulation let's put that uh, chart back up just so you'll have it for frame of reference. Some people who got saved during that seven-year tribulation that's variously referred to as uh, the time of Jacob's trouble or the overflowing scourge. You see on the screen there, it's, of course, the 70th week of Daniel, part of Daniel's 490-year plan, that final seven years of it, uh, the great day of the Lord's wrath, and so on. People that get saved during that time and survive, uh, they're not beheaded. I'm, I'm just finishing chapter 12 of uh, the final edits of chapter 12 of my book and we're, I was thinking about all the beheadings that are going to take place in, during that seven year tribulation of believers and the incredible martyrs. We read about that in Revelation 6 and Revelation 7 and then again in Revelation 19. And so, uh, but those who, who are able to hide out like Jesus says in Matthew 24 and, and avoid the uh, satanic wrath of the Antichrist, they will be the ones to whom Jesus says when he returns at the end of the seven years, come ye, blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. Right? And so those people will be in their physical bodies. They will not be in their glorified bodies. And they will be the ones that are able to procreate and repopulate the earth during that 1,000-year millennial phase of, of the kingdom. Um, their children, like everyone born... Uh, every human being, according to Ephesians 2.1, will be born dead in their trespasses and sins and, and needs to be saved. We all need to be born again by faith alone in Christ alone. Over the course of that thousand years, many will, in fact, place their faith in Christ. Um, many won't. 
and it's the ones who don't that will then, uh, you know, be constituting sinfulness and sinful behavior and so forth, although it'll be largely held in check. Um, you know, we're going through Wednesday nights right now, uh, and by the way, uh, John uh, Sperling uh, texted me this weekend, and he said, be sure and tell your folks that it's never too late to join our Wednesday night uh, study. This Wednesday, this coming Wednesday, we're going to learn our first tool for sharing the gospel. It's a ser- eight-week series called Good News Made Clear. We're giving you just some simple little one, two-minute uh, techniques that you can use to open a door for the gospel and begin talking to people casually wherever you go. So this week is the first one that we're going to learn about those. So if you haven't been able to make it, I highly encourage you uh, to come out for that uh, training session. Uh, but in the kingdom, the evangelistic enterprise will be a little different. You know, right now, as we share Christ with people, we have to, we have to encourage them to look back at the Son of God who came to earth, put on human flesh, lived a perfect, holy, sinless life, took our sins upon his shoulders on the cross, paid a penalty for us, paid our own penalty, our personal penalty, uh, and then was buried and rose again the third day, defeating death, hell, and the grave. In the kingdom, we won't have to have people hearken back to the God of the Bible or the historical person and work of Christ. We'll just point them to the guy sitting over there in Jerusalem, the king of the world, who gave you know the state of the world address on CNN you know, in January every year, and say, if you'll trust that guy, that guy, if you'll believe in him, you know who I'm talking about? Oh, yeah, yeah, that guy that's ruling the world. Yeah, if you'll trust in him, you can have eternal life and have your sins forgiven. So it's always faith alone in Christ alone, but the object of that faith changes as God unveils more and more of his plan. And someday we will uh, be able to look Jesus uh, in the eye. And so back to uh, the eternal state, Let's read Revelation 22.4 and uh, see what we read here about seeing Jesus. Um, let's, uh, let's just pick it up in verse 1 for context. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. We talked about that last week. In the middle of the street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Remember, we talked about the word healing there in Greek means nourishment. There's no injury or pain in the eternal state, so it's not talking about healing you from an injury, but more of nourishment, this concept of eternal uh, nourishment. And then notice in verse 4, or verse 3, There shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. Uh, let me just stop there for a second. A lot of times people think that work, service, is somehow tied to the fall. Well, remember, before the fall of man, God had already given Adam a job. Uh, he was to name all the animals. He was to tend the garden and keep it. So work is a fundamental part of mankind. We were created to serve. And so what happened at the fall is then that work or service became you know, painful, difficult, the sweat of the brow, those types of things. And so when we come full circle back to the pre-fall state, we will once again be serving. We're not, a lot of times people have the idea from you know, Hollywood and other just bad teaching that you know, heaven is essentially this place where everybody you know, gets wings. First of all, we were listening to a song on the drive up and it was 
about you know heaven, and it was talking about getting wings, and we both looked at each other and kind of laughed. But everyone, a lot of people think you know you get to heaven and you're going to be floating around with wings in the clouds, singing kumbaya, and that's kind of this ethereal picture of heaven. No, no, heaven. By the way, the, as we've talked a lot about, the eternal dwelling place of the redeemed, strictly speaking, biblically speaking, is not heaven. It's the new heaven and new earth. And so we use the phrase heaven as a metonym for the eternal dwelling place of the redeemed. But God's, God's divine design is for mankind to dwell on earth and have dominion over it and to, this, to, to, to bring him glory. And had Adam and Eve never sinned, that would be their dwelling place to this day. And there would be billions of people on the earth. All sinless, you know. Um, but they sinned, and the curse of sin, Romans 5.12 tells us, is passed down through the blood. Every human being ever born is sinful. But when we return to the pre-fall state in the, in the uh, kingdom, uh, at that point, uh, there won't be sin, and we will, you know, we will, uh, there won't be the curse of sin, and we will be serving him. But we'll be serving him not as a chore, but as a delight. You know, one of the, you know, great blessings uh, of my life for the last 30, almost 35 years is being able to make a living doing what I love, you know. I mean, not everybody gets that privilege. I understand that. Um, obviously, biblically speaking, whatever God calls us to do uh, by way of employment, we ought to do it, work as unto the Lord and do it for His glory, and we ought to get the best out of it. But you know what I mean. I mean, you know, I, I just... I, I love teaching and preaching the Word of God and studying the Word of God and writing about the Word of God. Um, hopefully, whatever God's called you to do, you share that uh, feeling as well. But unfortunately, in a, in a world under the curse of sin, some people work doing things that they may not necessarily enjoy, but they do it because they have to do it. They do it to make a living, to provide for their family and so forth, right? So uh, in the kingdom, it'll be all joyful, all joyous. It'll be... a a privilege and a and, and it'll be great delight uh, to serve him uh, someday in the eternal uh, kingdom and then verse four they shall see his face and his name shall be on their foreheads so remember in the beginning of revelation we talk uh, he talks about in the letters to the churches how the overcomers which is a reference to all believers now, I understand that a lot of people who are like-minded with us on uh, Scripture with regards to the end times, they take the overcomer passages in Revelation 2 and 3 as referring to rewards. Uh, I don't believe that. Uh, I think it's pretty clear from the context that the overcomers are all believers. In fact, uh, see if I can put my finger on the verse in 1 John 5. Remember, John, the apostle, is the author of Revelation, and he's also the author of the three epistles of John and the Gospel of John. But um, in 1 John 5, we read in verse 4, Whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So the overcomers are anyone who by faith uh, has uh, become a child of God. And so I think that when he's talking about all of the blessings of overcomers, he's speaking in general of all believers. And one of those is a special name that is known uh, only to us and the Lord. And, and, and he, we see that referenced again here in Revelation 22.4, this name on our foreheads. What else is significant about that is that, remember, uh, Satan, from his 
fall, uh, which we read about in Ezekiel 28, has been trying to mimic God. Remember, he wanted to usurp God's throne in the heavenlies. And he wanted to be like God. And God said, no way. His uh, coup was thwarted. Satan took one-third of the angels with him, and he came to the earth. And he's been trying to take over the earth ever since then. And the climactic moment in this battle, 6,000 years running, will be the, the, the tribulation, that final seven years where things will heat up. In the, in the new book, we're talking about the spirit of phenomena, the paranormal, all kinds of cosmic signs in the heavenlies that take place when the spiritual battle between God and Satan begins more and more to peek over into the temporal realm of time, space, and matter. And what's one of the things that the Antichrist, indwelt by Satan, the ruler of the world for seven years, the satanic, tyrannical ruler of the world, what's one of the things that he's going to try to do in mimicking Christ? He's going to try to make everyone take a mark, the mark of the beast, on their forehead or on their arm. So that's just one more way in which Satan is uh, an imposter trying to do the things that uh, God does. Uh, in the book of Revelation, I've pointed this out many times, but it, when we begin, when the book begins its discussion of that seven-year period, which is in Revelation 6, 1, remember, um, see if I can put up my Revelation chart here. Uh, the book of Revelation is the easiest book in the Bible to, um, to outline even though you know, Satan has done a great job of convincing people, oh, it's so complicated and so hard to understand, and nobody really understands you know, the end times. That's not true at all. You know, the Bible is, is very clear, and the book of Revelation is the easiest book in the Bible to, to outline. The first uh, chapter introduces Christ. It's the revelation of Christ, not revelations, but revelation of Christ. Uh, chapters 2 and 3 are seven church letters to seven literal historic churches from the first century. Chapters 4 and 5 answer the question, what gives God the right to pour out his wrath upon the world? It's called a theodicy, a justification for the wrath of God. And then chapters 6 all the way to 19 are the wrath of God, the outpouring of God's wrath. In chapter 6, uh, God's wrath is already being poured out on the earth. That's why by the end of chapter 6, the Bible tells us people are crying out, hide us from the wrath because the wrath of the Lamb has come, they say, right? So a lot of Bible teachers mistakenly suggest, well, the wrath starts in chapter 8 or starts in chapter 11 or it starts here. No, it starts in chapter 6. That's pretty clear. And so, uh, but what do we read right there at the beginning of chapter 6, verse 1, or verse 2 actually, this rider on a white horse. Who is that? Remember the four horsemen of the apocalypse? That's the first four seal judgments. Uh, the very first one is a white horse, and it has a rider, and verse 2 says of chapter 6, a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Well, who is that? That's the Antichrist, mimicking the Christ. And so by the time you get to the end of Revelation, you see another white horse, and another rider on the white horse coming back. And this time, he's not an imposter. What does the Bible tell us his name is in Revelation 19 and verse um, 11? Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called what? Faithful and true. He's the real deal. He's not the imposter, right? So uh, we're going to see Jesus like we've never seen him before when we get 
to the eternal state. And we will serve him like never before. And we will have a connection with him like never before. Remember we read in chapter 21 about how John repeated that phrase that we see often in the Old Testament about how God will be with them and he shall be their God and we shall be his people. That's a unique phrase that speaks to intimacy. And as I said last week, that intimacy is something that believers in the present age have come closer to than any other believer in any other age because of the new and living way opened up for us by the blood of Christ. When that veil was rent, you know, then we have unmitigated access. But still, you know, we're still praying to him in the spirit. He's still up there, metaphorically speaking, Christ is omnipresent because he's God, but we, we still, you know, pray to him and have that, you know, we can march boldly, Hebrews 4, right into the throne room in heaven. But in the kingdom, we'll be able to march right up to him and uh, have that special intimacy. So a couple of verses that, um, uh, and then I'll open it up to questions, that come to my mind when I think about seeing Jesus. And again, I've just explained how this isn't necessarily the first time we see him face to face but it's seeing him in a different light. Uh, one, of course, is also by John, uh, obviously under the inspiration of the Spirit, like all of Scripture, 1 John chapter uh, 3, verse 2, and you're familiar with this passage. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. I believe this is a reference to the ultimate finality, when all is said and done, when all things are made new. Not necessarily that moment we see him in the clouds, not necessarily that moment when we fight with him at the Battle of Armageddon, not that moment when we're ruling and reigning with him in the thousand years. I mean, perhaps that's all wrapped up in this. It's, it's somewhat uh, vague. But certainly, by the time you get to Revelation 22.4, and we're seeing Jesus in the eternal state. That's what John's talking about here. Now, when he says, uh, when he is revealed, we shall be like him, that doesn't mean we're going to become gods. Some false teachers have tried to suggest that, that ultimately we're little gods. You know, a lot of cults and things through the centuries have taught that. It doesn't mean we shall be him just means we'll be like him. In what sense? Well, we will all be glorified in the eternal state together. So what a day that's going to be. What a moment that will be. Now, I recognize that, uh, you know, as I just said, when, when he is revealed, well, the Bible speaks of several revelations of the Lord. What does the word revelation mean? It means it's the word apocalypsis, where we get the apocalypse. It means unveiling. And uh, the uh, picture is of like a sculptor unveiling his sculpture, like if he's been working on this for months or years and it's covered in a, in a big cloth or tarp and everyone is invited for the big unveiling, right? And then they take that tarp off and, wow, you behold this work. Well, that's the, the word picture here of unveiling or revealed, right? So Christ is, was revealed at the first advent, right? Uh, what does uh, the writer of Hebrews say in uh, Hebrews... Uh, one, uh, God who at various times and in various ways spoke to us in time spoke to us in time past to the fathers. Let me start over. 
sometimes my brain it's kind of like a computer that you need to sort of restart because it, my brain gets ahead of my mouth God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his son whom he has appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the worlds who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, I love that phrase, we don't do anything to purge our sins. We don't surrender, we don't commit, we don't promise, we don't make him Lord, we don't make him the king, we don't forsake all of our sins, we don't make a promise. Salvation is not a bilateral contract where we say, God, I'll promise to do all this, and he says, you've got a deal. It's nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross cycling. He purged our sins by himself. We simply receive it as a free gift. By himself, purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, which is where he is uh, today, waiting for his time to return. But that was a revelation. That was the unveiling of the Lord, the first advent. At the rapture, he will be revealed, right? And we'll see him in the clouds. At the second coming, he's going to be revealed, uh, unveiled, and coming all the way to the earth to take the throne promised to him. And then, of course, in the eternal state, we will see him like never before. So 1 John uh, 3.2 is a verse that came to mind. Psalm 16 is a Davidic psalm, one of David's uh, psalms. And it uh, also uh, crossed my mind. It's a messianic psalm. And it says in uh, Psalm 16, verse 11, the last verse in the psalm. By the way, it's interesting. This is called a mictum. Of David. Anybody know what a mictum is? If you do, you're you're alone because like there's 16 different things scholars say that it is. We don't really know what it is. It's one of those questions we'll ask God when we get there. The best guess I think is it's it's a special psalm, a precious psalm. It has something to do with golden, is the Hebrew word here. But like this is one of the really special ones. But we don't really know mictum. Uh, but anyway, it's a psalm, and verse 11 says, He will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. And I think when we get to the eternal state, as we've been talking about here, that will be the joy evermore, the pleasures everlasting. That will be the ultimate consummation of our faith becoming sight. Certainly there's plenty of others before that. Uh, and we all say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. We want to see him someday, soon. But in the eternal state, it will be like no other. So uh, with that, uh, I'll open the floor to comments, thoughts, questions, anything you might have. Anybody? Yes. And I'll try to repeat the question for the live streamers. <laughs> She's blaming it on you. So the question is about cremation. I don't see anything in Scripture that would prohibit us today, not under the law, from cremation. This body is just a tent, you know. It's just a temporary dwelling place. Um, 
it's not the real us. You know, the real JB is not what you see here. Forgot to take my name tag off. Um, the real JB is, 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 is who I really am inside my soul. I could cut off my hand or cut off a leg and I'm still JB. And obviously we all know that in the flesh it's, it, it deteriorates. You know, the moment we're born it starts dying. And so the older you get, you know, things start to ache and creak and not working. And it's just, you just, you just get old, right? And uh, this body eventually goes the way of all flesh and, but our soul doesn't. So I don't, there's no theological issue with cremation. I think there's some practical issues with it. I think it's, it's helpful for your loved ones to be able to get closure, to see. I mean, we've all been to uh, funerals of saved people, believers. And when you see them lying there, you know, you can just tell that's not them. That's an empty shell. So there's something, I think, to be said from a practical standpoint, but I, there's no theological issue with it. Um, anybody else? Yes? Um, question about um, in the thousand years section. Um, will people, as we understand at the beginning of the thousand years, um, there will only be believers. Correct. And the believers that are there will, that are still, that never experienced death, uh, you say that they were translated. Well, no. At, so the question is about at the beginning of the millennium, who's going to be on earth, right. basically. So uh, the, at the, sec, at the uh, second coming of Christ, I hope I have this chart that I wanted to put up. If not, I'll just explain it. Um, uh, this isn't my latest one, but it'll do. At the second coming, all believers prior to the church age and after the church age, which means during the tribulation, will, will receive their glorified body. They'll be resurrected. So that's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Daniel, Moses, you know, David, and believers that got saved and martyred during the tribulation. So that's who is resurrected at the second coming. We're resurrected... Uh, if we die before the Lord comes, at the rapture. The people that enter the kingdom in their physical bodies are the ones who got saved during the tribulation, that seven-year period, and survived. So there has to be a group in physical bodies alive at the return of Christ to inhabit and populate the kingdom. That's the reason, among many other biblical reasons, that historic premillennialism doesn't work. Those who suggest that the rapture and the second coming take place at the same time, yet still try to believe in a literal earthly kingdom, it, it, it doesn't work. Because at the rapture, all believers get their glorified bodies. At the second coming, all unbelievers are cast into the lake of hell. Who's left to populate the earth? Nobody. So you've got to have some length of time for people to get saved after the rapture and then inhabit the kingdom and populate the kingdom. And so uh, when the kingdom starts, though, you're right, uh, at the start of the kingdom, everyone on earth will be a believer. Some will be in their glorified bodies. Some will be in their physical bodies. But everyone will be a believer. It's only after time, when children are born, that, uh, well, which theoretically could be nine months later, right, uh, that we will start to see unbelievers on the earth. Yeah, Nick. Will it be a pre-Adam Earth or a pre-Flood Earth? Yeah, or Earth, Adamic Earth, or a pre-Flood Earth. 
It won't be pre-flood because sin had already entered the earth by the time of the flood. Right. So the new world will go back to the pre-fall Adam, right? Pre-fall. Uh, because by the time of the flood, which was, what, 2400, I think, uh, B.C., based on the way we count dates today, uh, sin had already taken hold. It's unbelievable how rapidly sin took hold and degenerated. Remember, the reason God flooded the earth was because man was desperately wicked and had tried to, you know, become God, basically, and destroy the gene pool and all that. So, yeah, pre-fall. Pre-fall. Sin, sinless perfection. Yes? We have a one-question limit, ma'am. I'm just kidding. Yes. Glorified and non-glorified saints will be interacting, will know each other, will recognize each other, similar to the way the resurrected Lord interacted with his disciples, and they certainly understood him and recognized him. And second, when people in their physical bodies during the millennium die, will they go straight to their glorified bodies? Or? Okay, so the question is when people in the millennium die, will they go straight to their glorified bodies? So we've talked about this. It's my contention, and I would not die on this hill. It's a theological uh, conclusion. I've written a journal article about it. I think I've mentioned that before, made it available a few months ago. It's my contention that believers don't die in the millennium, so even in their physical bodies. So the Bible is silent about when you know, they will receive their glorified bodies, uh, but we can assume theologically that like believers on earth at the rapture, it will be a translation because it can't be a resurrection if you're not dead. It must be a translation. So I believe that at some point prior to the eternal state, all believers that are not yet in their glorified bodies will be translated and given that glorified body. But the quick answer about death is that in the kingdom, in the millennial phase of the kingdom we're talking about now, death is only a consequence of sin. There's no accidental death or tragedies no drownings no none of that it's all perfect justice right and so since death is only a result of sin and the second premise you know if a and b ergo c is kind of the theological way to come to this conclusion second premise is that only unbelievers sin based on ezekiel uh, 36 37 jeremiah 31 and the new covenant promises that when we're in the new covenant fully inaugurated we will walk in his statutes, we will obey him, there will be no sin for the new covenant community. So therefore, if only unbelievers can sin, and if death is only the result of sin, only unbelievers can die. And yes, if an unbeliever dies uh, as a result of, as a result of uh, capital punishment, you know, Jesus says, yes, he did, he did that crime, he deserves to die, then they will go immediately into the lake of fire, um, like all believers of all times. Luke 16 is a good example there. So, good question. One more question. Yes. Well, you can listen to all 67 of them this afternoon. Yes. No, so we talked about this last week, actually, or might have been two weeks ago. But, yeah, so that is a metonym. It's a, it's a figure of speech. Um, Notice he said, we're talking about Revelation 21. The question is about 
if he says he will wipe away your tears, doesn't that mean we must be crying in heaven? No, not at all, because he says specifically, uh, verse 4, Revelation 21, there will be no sorrow. So the, the phrase wipe away a tear is just a, a, a figure of speech to refer to no sorrow. It doesn't, it's not talking about physical tears, right? During when is there sorrow? So this is after the second coming. This is the millennium. or This is the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, so for sure, in eternity is, is the idea. In eternity, there's no sorrow. The fact that Jesus is wiping away tears doesn't mean that we were crying. I mean, that's, that would be inconsistent with the very plain teaching of Scripture. There shall be no more sorrow. Right? So, or no more death, those kinds of things. No more pain, all, all of that. So, it's just a figure of speech. And, you know, we always interpret the obscure in light of the clear. And the Bible's clear. There's no pain, no sorrow, no death. So, therefore, wiping away tears has to be a metaphor. All right. Well, we want to end now. Sometimes we go a little longer. And I know some of you may have questions. But it, we have a great service plan. And we want to be sure and start right on time at 10. I'm talking to myself here because I never start on time because we're always milling about. But help me uh, watch the clock. Those of you here in the building, we'll reconvene at 10 o'clock. Those of you watching uh, online, we, we only start the live stream when I get up to speak. So that's usually about 1025 to 1035 in that range. But we will see you again at that time. We'll see the rest of you here at, in about 15 minutes at 10 o'clock.